Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Special thanks to our ever-growing posse of Team Human patrons, including Jake Jones, Fred Simkin, John Westover, Don Barber, and Rachel Dixon. Join them by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support to get access to our ad-free Team Human team feed, live events like the Meme, Myth, and Magic show I'm doing tonight at Caveat in New York, the Rushkoff archives, and maybe most importantly, each other at the Team Human community discord, where we recorded today's Kibitz Room discussion. Our next discussion's taking place this Friday, June 23rd, 2023, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Team Human Salons channel. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a collective operation intended to denaturalize embedded power, trigger human agency, re-socialize the people, and cultivate awe in ourselves and each other. This is your opportunity to find the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human. That's right, another episode recorded live from the Kibitz Room, Team Human's virtual retreat and social club. Fill up a pint, pull up a stool, and join the fun. It's time to intervene on behalf of all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Well, this last Kibitz Room, I was listening to it, and again, people are really thinking a lot about AI. It's like the topic of the moment. Reminds me of crypto or Web3 or some of the other ones. And almost almost everyone I've been speaking to in the entertainment business in particular, they are seeing ChatGPT as some kind of a, a new way to write scripts or generate animations and replace screenwriters and animation artists in the process. And this is just 
dumb on so many levels. It's part of why my my union brothers and sisters and I are striking. It's just stupid. That's not what to do with this stuff. First off, machine-generated writing sucks. It's a reversion to the mean. Ask ChatGPT to write something, and it will create the most derivative and predictable version of that thing it can muster. That's its job. Second, and perhaps more importantly, the desire to replace Hollywood's humans with AI misses the real opportunity. AI is actually better and more interesting than that. As Marshall McLuhan once noted, whenever a new medium arises, the first thing it does is use the previous medium as its content. So the first television shows were just stage plays with a single camera in the audience capturing the action, like in The Honeymooners with Jackie Gleason. It took decades before Desi Liu, right, that's Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, popularized the swing set, that's where what they used for I Love Lucy, and shot the first three-camera sitcom television shows. The first content of the text-only commercial internet was actually the medium of mail, but the first truly commercial medium it absorbed was television. The main thing we do on the internet is stream TV. We're still just in the baby stages of the internet's truly native content, which is going to be network gaming, blockchain, or some kind of interactive sports broadcasting where you can select what angle to watch and place bets and chat with others during the game. When a new medium arrives, we can't help but think first about how to use it to do what we already know. And that's particularly true for people who are less involved in artistic expression or experimentation than the culture industry of commercial entertainment, which is more focused on lowering costs and increasing profits than discovering a new form. It's no wonder then that the entertainment professionals see AI as a way to write scripts or render special effects. In some cases, they can hide the AI well enough to make it look as if real people created the stuff. But from a creative media perspective, that's hiding the very best part. The writer and artist got to play with the AI. All the compelling stories and hubbub about AIs and chat GPT, they're really just about people's interactions with AIs, not the results of them. Oh, the AI fell in love with me. The AI scared me. You won't believe how alive it seems. The picture somebody conjures with mid-journey, it's way more interesting to the person who prompted it than it is to anybody else. Looking at someone else's mid-journey picture is a bit like listening to someone tell you about their acid trip. I'm sure it was a big deal for them to walk through the 7-Eleven where the candy wrappers were singing Bach concertos, but it loses something in the telling. Like, the experience of writing a screenplay with an AI is probably really cool and even educational for the prompt engineer. But the result is just some machine-generated text. Who cares? Maybe for a Marvel movie, which is more like a finely tuned roller coaster than cinema, sure. Let the machine take you on a ride. Meh. But by hiding the AI, we deny people the best part of the experience. No, the real native content for the medium of AI will be interactive experiences of novel content generation by users.
That's the whole point. The AI can produce different results based on the prompts. So rather than watching artifacts of someone else's great experiences with AI, why not have them oneself? Like what? Think Max Headroom. Instead of watching a TV show about the fictional AI character, what if people can summon the character and engage with him? How about building an online oracle that can read tarot cards or astrology charts? How about basing one reader on Madame Blavatsky, one on Aleister Crowley, and another on Carl Jung? Wouldn't it be cool to get a tarot reading from Carl Jung and ask him questions? I want to play computer games with AI-embedded non-player characters who can respond uniquely to me. I don't want to trigger pre-written scripts. I want to get novel responses. AIs, they can finally solve the content problem of story games and interactive narratives. So instead of having to fill in an ever-expanding branching of possible user choices, game designers can put AIs in the games and then render all the places people want to go and render all the plot points users might come up with. In short, the entertainment value of AI is the AI itself. Don't think about how to hide its shameful replacement of human artists. Let them have their own medium. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So here we are. Where are we? We are in the kibitz room. Actually, we're just outside the door of the kibitz room, 24 stories deep underground, safely stowed away in the Team Human Apocalypse bunker. You can also get there on the Team Human Discord. Uh, But let's go there live. This conversation took place back in time, Friday, May 19th. We're going to warp through time as I move through this door. Welcome. So, hey, it's been a weird few weeks. I had this giant feature come out about me in Wired Magazine, which was both scary and fun. I kept starting each paragraph worrying, okay, this is where they're going to get me. This is where they're going to dig in. And one paragraph started, you know, harsher critics might accuse Rushkoff of da 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 I was like, uh-oh, here it comes. And then they said, so sweetly, they said, but that would be wrong or that would be, that would be inaccurate or something. And I was like, oh, they didn't even do the necessary to-be-sure attack on me. So it was actually a, a somewhat sad piece in that it, it was a little bit about the dashed hopes of the great 
early internet era, but it was not a character assassination, especially coming from Wired, which has been such a, a nemesis over the over the decades. It was a a very welcome welcome surprise and felt like oh good I'm here. It was really an odd feeling to read this piece about this dude and go oh wow, you know, but that's me. So yay. Um, so that was really the week, and I really feel like this whole AI thing is part of what's brought our our little team human movement to the fore. You know, now that people are are actually contemplating, even though these are not real AIs, that people are contemplating chat GPT and the possibilities. I think it's finally getting them to think, oh, well, what do we humans have? What makes us special? What what can we do that doesn't necessarily serve utilitarianism or capitalism or whatever is being expressed by these things? So it's ultimately, even though it looks weird on the news or in, in the way we read about it, it's actually, I see this as a... Uh, as a positive moment for the uh, kind of let's let's think about the real relationship of humans and machines. What do we want to do with these technologies? Why are we so afraid of losing our jobs, especially if we don't really like our jobs? And what's that about? That well, maybe we'll start to have the right conversations just as we as we near 1.5 degrees uh, uh, Celsius beyond where we're supposed to be. So, uh, new hope, a new dream. But hey, everybody. Hey, Brenna, how you doing? Good. Um, so I'm kind of, uh, I've spent the last couple of weeks picketing with the WGA. Yay. And yeah, it's been fun. It's been kind of a weird mix, seeing old friends and acquaintances and strangers and talking to people with a common cause. But it's been kind of a little disconcerting because the first few days when I've been picketing, we're very disconnected from each other. Uh, and it kind of feels like being on Twitter because it's um, we kind of hand each other our like hyphenates. So we list off our resumes really quickly and <laughs> then we just kind of revert to WGA um, talking points. And uh, it's strange because we all know them and we're all well versed in them, but we're still just kind of on repeat with that. And mm. uh, I've been trying to kind of emotionally connect with people a little bit more and try to get them to talk about the things they like care about on a deeper level. And I've found one thing that has helped me is um, asking people what their dreams are, hmm. what their dream project is, and like what their favorite thing they've written is. And I've found that older people are really good at answering that. But people in my age bracket, I'm a millennial, have a really hard time with it. And it kind of touches on this sadness that they don't know anymore what that is. They don't know what their dream is. And I, we kind of revert back to those talking points because I don't want to keep them on that too long, keep them in that sadness. And it's just kind of a, I mean, it's sad. Yeah, that's what, so I guess I'm just kind of taking emotional stock of that. It's interesting. You know, it's funny, that Wired piece about me ended really sad kind of too. It was, it could be looked at as sad or as possible, but they basically, it was me in the basement of this building at Queens with a bunch of old, you know, salvaged media equipment and me like hoping that some students are going to want to come work with me. And it was as if, okay, Doug's dream of the internet 
has been dashed, right? The, you know, the, that we are going to network into the guy in mind and reach <laughs> collective consciousness and reach touch the aliens and whatever it was in those early, you know, the early 90s rave days of, of, you know, the net as the great psychedelic realization. So that was the net was my dream project. Right. And uh, but in a certain way, I guess growing partly growing up is losing that romantic dream project naivete and moving into something more real. But you would hope at least artists, and I consider screenwriters artists, as I'm sure you do, you would hope they would at least, you know, I, I always wanted to do a such and such. Or long term, I hope... You know, even if it's silly, you know, like if you talk to Spielberg and he goes, well, what I really want to do is West Side Story, you know, God bless, right? It's whatever. So it's it's interesting. And you found the older ones still had kind of held on to the idea of dream projects, but the millennials had lost it. Yeah, they know how to talk about things that they're even if they didn't accomplish it, they, they know how to kind of engage in that sadness and move through it. And I kind of feel like my generation is a little cut off from that. Hmm. It's weird. I was thinking about this whole other thing. It, it reminds me, I was going to start this piece for Medium about why we have like people in their 70s and 80s like running for president and nobody younger seems to be allowed to do it. And I was thinking yeah. part of that is because there to run for president, you kind of have to be an institutionalist of one sort or another. You've got to believe in real institutions, that they're real and anybody young, like when you look at a, a Buttigieg or even an Amy Klobuchar or something, you know that they believe in America and government and institutions. But part of me looks at them and goes, because they're fucking crazy, right? It's like little Buttigieg, you know, I, it's like I don't take it's like, oh, he must be CIA. He must be, you know, or Amy. It's like, oh, you're like, I remember those cheerleader girls who were like pep squad and believed. And you're like, oh, come on. You're so naive that if they're from one of our generations and believe in the institution, we look at them and think there must be something wrong with them. And it's like for old people, you can go, OK, you're from an older generation. You can wear that. But we kind of can't. And I feel like millennials in particular have that even, I mean, like you're saying, even just having a dream project, it's almost like, do you think it's a defense against it not happening that they, that it's, it's a way of trying to pre-insulate yeah, themselves from disappointment? There's definitely, I think there's some of that. I think there's also just kind of a, I mean, I have a lot of, I'm not a screenwriter myself, but I have a yeah, lot of friends who are screenwriters. How do you get to go? What's your, your WGA association? So I'm just a songwriter, but I used to do stuff at um, a Bright Citizens Brigade. So I know a lot of TV writers. And so I kind of just... You're just going out of love and solidarity? Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> wow. But yeah, it's. I, I think there's a lot of burnout. I think they get to a point where they just, uh, their dream becomes get staffed and they don't think about the creative part and the love of it. Right. Can I get in a... Well, that's the thing. They know things about... They're professionals and they're so industry, I guess, so many of them that they're like, oh, I want to get in a good writer's room. And then uh -huh. I want to be co-executive producer. I was looking at, what was it? Some show of oh, the new Star Trek, like uh, Picard or something. And I saw there were like 30 different people with like executive producer, co-executive producer, producer, 
co-producer, supervising producer, supervising co-producer. And I'm like, to the people, those people you're on, they know what those things all mean, right? There's, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's like, and they mean something important, I'm sure. I'm not making fun of it, but it's something way other than like writing. So it's like, what's your dream? Oh, do you get to be co-executive producer on a Netflix show with a budget of more than $3 million per episode? Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very different dream than I want to make, you know, Pinocchio or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I, I guess it's also embarrassing to share the thing you really want to do. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, for me, yeah. I'm just kind of in that place where I'm ready to do that. So maybe I'm just a little out of phase with people. Yeah. And what's your dream project? <laughs> um, I actually just did mine. I put it out in July. I put out an hour of music that I'd been working on for about a year. Oh, my God. Can we all listen to it? Or do we have to like subscribe to Spotify? Yeah, you can. Uh, <laughs> I have a, It's on YouTube and Spotify and all the other stuff. And what's it called? A Thousand Masks. It was a huge labor of love, and I I put all my vulnerability and weirdness into it, and I was really, really happy. So I always want my friends to be kind of engaged in doing that thing because it made me feel so much better about everything. So, Yeah, and I guess it's really hard to make money off music, right? Oh, yeah, I'm not making any money, but but I'm happy. (laughs) I'm not making any money, and I'm happy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, what do you think uh, uh, this writer's strike actually has me a little upset because I was at another one of those points when finally there was someone interested in like making ecstasy club as a TV show. And of course Mm -hmm. that deal is like happens like 10 days before the writer's strike happens. And once again, Mm -hmm. I dashed into sadness, but the last writer's strike, it's like a heck of a lot of, of fictional content ended up being replaced by reality TV. You know, it's almost mm-hmm. you could almost blame not the writers, but you could almost blame the last writer strike for Trump. Right. We, we lost <laughs> our fictional media. We got reality TV and then we got this this insanity. So now in the writer strike, it feels like this is the perfect opportunity for studios to hire AIs to write. Well, they don't hire them even, but to buy AIs to replace the writers and not that it'll be the same mm-hmm. or as good but it'll be something it'll be some form mm-hmm. of content i mean yeah it's a scary it's a real fear especially it gets talked about a lot on the picket lines it's that's definitely the more existential threat yeah because you just you know you program an ai with robert mckee you know who wrote the big screenplay books this the book for people who don't know there's a book called story which is like the sid feld of the 21st century sid feld was that one before the three-act structure guy for the 1980s and 90s that everyone followed this one formula to write screenplays and mckee's formula is so advanced i'm sure you could type that whole thing into i'm sure it already is in in chat gpt and it'll write 
screenplays. Apparently, Jim Rutt, who we've actually had on the show a long time ago, he's a, a an interesting, if slightly techno solutionist, systems theorist guy. Um, he apparently has programmed ChatGPT to be able to write screenplays and is inviting people <laughs> to go use it. <laughs> it's like, this is not the moment, Jim. This is not the right day to announce that. Yeah, the scary thing is it doesn't have to be uh, an amazing screenplay. It just has to be enough that executives think they can put it out. Right. We won't go see it, will we? Maybe we will. I don't know. But (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what happens is it just puts the human burden on someone else. So if you're like an actor in an AI written movie, then it's like, okay, dudes, now it's your job to humanize these lines. And you want to do a little improv or whatever's necessary. And then all of a sudden the writer's role is being fulfilled by other labor, not just, you know what I mean? Not just a machine. So mm-hmm. I just feel like the labor is almost never genuinely replaced. It's just moved somewhere. It's like their mm-hmm. robot made t-shirt is actually, Uh, The robot itself is made by some other enslaved person and the rare earth metals to build that is dug out by some other dude. And, you know, it's like there's always humans down at the bottom of this thing at some point. But I'm glad you went on those things. Did you get a T-shirt? I didn't. No. I'm just hanging out. They're pretty short on T-shirts. Oh, yeah. I kind of want one as the souvenir, but I feel bad because it's just another, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) another commodity or thing to buy. But I've got to go. I'm actually a member of the WGA. I became one because mm. of um, Frontline, my PBS Frontline things. They're a signatory. And now I pay my dues every year so I can get the screening DVDs that they send, which is just a wonderful thing, you know, so I could see the movies and things. But um, I should be next week, I guess I'll go, go on the, on the yeah, lines. And which one do you go to? I'll find you. Which, which? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm in LA, so I'm I'm kind of splitting my time between all the little studios. Oh, uh, all right. Well, that's way far then. No, I'm gonna probably be on. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll be on 14th Street or something. But I'll be with you in spirit. <laughs> but yeah, I like that. Yeah. I, it's so sweet that you that you show your solidarity and then also try to draw them out into into <laughs> their hopes and dreams. It's a space. It's a space we should all be inhabiting, inhabiting more. <laughs> it's just hard sometimes. You know, it's yeah. like it's a liability. You know, once you've had one or two dreams, I'm not going to dream anymore. That's it. I'm not. <laughs> but, you know, mm-hmm. it's all right. It's okay to dream. This is the team human is a safe space for dreamers yeah. and cynics alike. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on team human. Does anybody else want to raise their hand and, and join us? If not, then Luke. I guess, Douglas, to fill some of the time, I mean, we have seen so much over the last um, couple of months about AI and AI tools and how they can be used as alternative forms of creativity. But I heard someone called David Gunkel talk about what large language models are as nothing more than word remixes that all they're doing is they're not really showing creativity they're just representing the past to us by just arranging words in a random order and it's up to the human to make sense of it and i just wonder what you think about how to use these tools creatively and openly or should we just avoid them altogether i'm into using them creatively and it's funny, I I loved the internet right up to the point people tried to do serious things with it. 
You know, I remember when Citibank was going online, right? They're going to put their bank on the internet. And I thought, oh, no, don't do that. This is our play space. This is a crazy place. You know, every computer on the internet is saying, hi, my name's Douglas. What's your name? What do you have for me? I have something for you. You know, it was a promiscuous, sherry place where everybody's open to everything, where, you know, I could walk around and pretend I'm a dog or do whatever. And it's like, now we're going to put money on there. Now security is going to matter. Identity is going to matter. Authentication, all this stuff. And it's going to become something, uh, uh, not just legitimate, but utilitarian, which is so, I know we need stuff done, but come on, man, we had, we had something fun here. And I feel like AI is great for anything playful and kind of really bad for anything serious, like determining prison sentences or loan, uh, <laughs> loan adequacy or the kinds of things that they want to do with it, or the idea of just replacing replacing workers unless you're genuinely doing their work which is fine if you want to do the work and this is the big thing i got in when when it was cnn was like what about the unemployment problem the unemployment problem and i'm like i've got so i have no problem with being unemployed as long as I, i'm alive and paid you know it's not that i don't need the job i need the money right i don't even need the money i need the food i need the shelter so employment if robots really can do all the work and free up all the play for the rest of us that's you know totally fun that's that's all good but yeah i think that i think the the ai questions are are mixed up i think people are confusing their fear of ai with their fear of ai implemented capitalism ai itself is not a problem. And AI itself doesn't even, as, as you said, doesn't even exist. What we've got is a kind of a glorified Google search. We finally got, AI finally allows the internet to work the way it was kind of supposed to. We've got all this data up there. How do you get the data that you want from there? AI is getting pretty good at that, at taking everything we know and connecting the dots for us to bring us history of what we know. So it's like a really good or potentially good kind of a Wikipedia, but it's not thinking, it's not creating, it's not doing that, it's combining. It's right, it's DJ. And not that DJs are not creative. And when you DJ things and put together two songs that were never put together before, you know, when they take Pink Floyd's, um, what was it, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and play it against The Wizard of Oz, I think it was. And it's like, oh my God, it's you know, the meaning of both finally come true. You know, it's not that these two things knew about each other or that there's anything there. It doesn't mean it's alive, right? It means it found these glaring, wonderful coincidences. And these glaring coincidences are there because, yes, it's all patterns and connected and all. My most fun, and we were just talking about this before, Luke, you know, in, in, other, in other circumstances, but my most fun thing about MidJourney or ChatGPT is using them as sigils, you know, getting it to, to create something that is the image or the language around something that you want to bring into your life. It's a really, it's a fun way of casting you know, that's the realm I'd love us to be playing with rather than thinking of this as a new form of intelligence. But um, Adam raised his hand there. Hey, it's good to be here. It's my first time in the salon. Uh, I just joined this week. Oh, cool. Welcome. And I'm doing well. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Welcome. Thank, you. Thank you for joining Team Human. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only team, man. It is the only team. I mean, I've been... I've been 
I've been an enjoyer and, and, and listener and absorber, you know, for years and through other, you know, kind of similar organizations. Oh, cool. And there's this, I mean, what, you know, once you and Luke, you're talking about AI as this all-encompassing subject that we're all sort of drowning in this tar pit of this multi, multi-headed uh, subject. That phenomenon of like, don't think about elephants. And what are you thinking about elephants? It seems so like everywhere you go that it's really difficult to be in any kind of sort of, you know, so-called digital common space or a social media platform. And it's like, it is the only subject. And of course, and it's for good reason, right? There's, it's good to have inquisitiveness, curiosity, some discernment, and I guess a healthy dose of fear, you know, and in, in motivating these conversations. But I feel like I'm coming into Team Human from the perspective of a kind of recovering UX designer, someone who's become motivated and catalyzed by humane tech, or someone who's a father to a young child who's turning eight this summer, you know, having these kinds of, seeing these kinds of uh, where we're at now, these current issues of, you know, social media use and tech use with with prepubescent, you know, brain development and what the the issues, you know, that that, that brings up, you know, that, that's being studied right now. And then you have kind of this whole swirl, this whole amalgam coming into it. And so, you know, it's just, it's great to be a part of a community of folks who can actually just engage in conversation. So I just really appreciate being here. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it is weird. I do think it's an AI, the, the AI moment is almost a, like this weird culmination. It's the easiest way for people to start thinking about, you know, technology the way that McLuhan or Postman or one of those folks would, you know, because AI starts to feel like an environment. It starts to feel like this, this thing that affects that affects us. And I think it helps people finally see, oh, there's two ways that these tools can happen. We can either be given tools to do stuff or the tools might be used on us. And AIs, because the AIs have the illusion of autonomy, it helps people see that, oh, I get it. I'm the, I'm the object here. I'm the object being acted upon by a piece of technology rather than the the subject or the user doing the thing. That's why I say, oh, I love AI as a way for people to cast out, you know, for to dream or to make something, to spray paint, to imagine, to play, as opposed to AI being used to coerce people to think this or do that or spend more or whatever it is that we're supposed to do. And I guess the illusion that AIs are acting autonomously helps people finally see, oh, I get it. I'm being acted upon here. And how do I restore my agency in an environment like that? And then when you, when you start really thinking about it, you go, oh, it's not the technology at all. It's the whatever value system has been programmed into it. So if they're scraping the last 10 years of human activity for to model their behavior, then they're modeling 
especially online, you know, they're modeling, you know, tech bro capitalism is what they're modeling, which is why, funnily enough, it's the tech bro billionaires who are the most afraid of this stuff. They're the ones putting out the letters of the existential doom because they're like, oh, wait a minute. They're, if the AIs model us and we are evil colonizers, then uh oh, <laughs> these poor these poor dudes. So it's it's kind of funny that way. But yeah, but that's why the the little modest thing. The for me, the beauty of the team human thing is how small and kind of unscaled it is. I mean, team human. Obviously, we're all around the world. We're humans, but as a movement, as a behavior, as a thing. I mean, look, there's a dozen of us in this little room. There's a a, a tininess and hopefully a humility to the human behavior that kind of stands in the face of this other thing. And we're okay. Look at that holding space for the uncertainty. What, what, but Z Kishin is saying it's right. It's holding space for the uncertainty of what actually goes on inside the black box is difficult, but yeah, but that's exactly what we do, you know, is hold, it's hold the space, hold the space for uncertainty, both on that side of things and in our own side of things. That's the place. That's the alive place that's so tricky, but it requires this weird, this kind of humility, uh, and particularly in terms of our designs. You know, we're not going to plot the future of humanity here. This is the direction that we go. It's more about, oh, do we want, how do we engender, a, a, you know, an environment that makes people act nice to each other and things like that? It's a lot, it's a lot harder. You know, to, to this end, let me read. There's a, a Bob Fish said, uh, I was with some friends after a rock show and talking about AI and almost everyone feared AI for what I don't think is possible, like it becoming sentient and turning on humans. I used exactly this response that Doug is bringing up. My argument was that it's going to take jobs, but it won't replace us in any way. That being said, I'm a furniture maker, DJ, musician, artist, and still have no worries of AI replacing my humaneness, or I guess humanness either. But it's funny. I don't have any fear of it replacing one's humanness, but it could replace certain kinds of music, certain kinds of DJing, you know, bring in an AI DJ instead of a human one, you know, or everyone, you know, make a gimmick out of it. Everyone share your deepest thought with your AI, with the AI DJ before our wedding. And then we'll see what playlist it comes up with, you know, or you know, <laughs> there'll, there'll be all sorts of gimmicks to not hire. And I always think back to, you know, first they came for the cab drivers and I said nothing, right? Cause I am not a cab driver. <laughs> then they came for the musicians and they came and, and I'm sure they're going to come for the writers, the podcasters, the teachers. They already came for the teachers. They will come for each of these things. And that's why I think the important thing, just like the writers and the writer strike have to be able to do, what we have to do now is somehow explain the human factor of the, of the things that we're doing. You know, the human factor beyond the utilitarian value of the things we're doing. You know, you don't need a human to be a truck, Right. That's true, you know, and I'm glad we're not having to put things on our backs and walk around, you know, as carry mules or something. But, you know, writers, teachers, doctors, nurses, there's the utilitarian value of the person who puts the needle in you. But then there's also the human value of the person who puts the needle in you. And what is that person? You know, what, what are they doing? And the same with music and art. I'd spoken about this before. You know, you look at a Van Gogh, you're not just looking at paint interacting with your retina 
You know, you are looking through the paint to the human being on the other side who made that thing. What were they thinking? What were they tortured? How do they see the world? You know, when you read, you know, a great author at night, even if they're dead, you connect with them. There's those moments when their soul touches your soul and you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, you've conjured them. They're, they're there. And that doesn't happen with the AI. Even if the AI can imitate that effect, it's still not actually happening. And that's the, the, the silly but wonderful part of Team Human. That's where some amount of faith comes into it. Faith that there's something really going on here more than the absolute material reality, that human beings have souls or something, you know, something more. And the minute you identify what those things are, they're copyable again by the machine. So it will always require faith in that liminal, undefined other, other thing. And if it's a matter of faith, then I guess I've become a person of faith in order to hold out that while human beings or animals or life is here, there's something going on that won't be if it's just, you know, Ray Kurzweil's uh, uh, mind clones here in a, uh, an otherwise dead silicon uh, silicon reality. I think, Douglas, what Adam and Bob are grasping towards is that it feels like we're in an AI atmosphere. Every single story in the press at the moment, whether it's uh, Sam Altman at Congress or here in the UK, there's been discussions of AI. My mother doesn't even spend time on social media or on the internet, and she calls me up and goes, the BBC has got something on AI almost every single day. Can you explain to me what's going on? So it does feel like we are being bombarded by these sorts of stories right now, and it's a lot of these AI doomer stories stories. Your friends, Tristan Harris and the Centre for Humane Technology, they've gone from the social dilemma to the AI dilemma. So if we're in this environment of AI doomerism, what is the reversal, Douglas? How do we how do we combat the AI doomerism? Is it through something like AI humorism? Like what, what is it we need to adopt to see these these expressions of fear as silly, not, not as something that's that's actually going to cause us trouble? Yeah. Well, I mean, AI is the biggest story since Trump. And you could argue Trump was an AI, right? It's since blockchain. It reminds me of the blockchain in 2020. Yeah. It's, it, it, we were in the atmosphere of blockchain and everything was Web 3.0 and that's just suddenly been forgotten. <laughs> and now we're in yeah. the AI. You know, it's what happens to the blockchain thing? I know. And exactly what happened to the blockchain. And before that, it was social media. And before that, it was Y2K was the big one. That they, the turn of the millennium. Oh, God, yeah. yeah, no, we went through Metaverse. I forgot, Adam. <laughs> we went blockchain, Metaverse, ne then, uh, then uh, uh, AI. Right. I mean, on the one hand, what it is is capital looking for the next big thing to invest in. And they have to come faster and more furiously in order to support the growth of the meta economy or the financialized economy. So there'll be another one, I promise you. There'll be another one after AI, whether it's, you know, robots or genetic engineering or cloning or nano. We still haven't seen nano, right? It actually builds stuff. Or then AI using nano to build its own bodies and soldiers and everything else. I mean, that that's part of why I feel like AI... It is cool, some of the things it does, but it really jumped into the standing wave of culture, the same way Donald Trump did, the same way that Charlie Sheen did. You know, there's like a more a cultural need for 
this apocalypto story. You know, I wrote my survival of the richest book kind of before the AI craze. And now it's more popular than ever because it's like, oh, because AI feels so uh, apocalyptic. It does. It's like the perfect doomer, uh, doomer thing. Yeah, maybe this is David saying maybe some of the AI doomerism is just marketing. Like, is this thing so powerful? It's scary. Sends the implicit message that the technology is powerful and mysterious and draws attention. Exactly. You know, when I see Sam Altman and Elon Musk, who are the investors of ChatGPT or of OpenAI going, oh, my God, you know, regulate us, man. Hold us back. Hold me back. Hold me back. It reminds me, you know, when you see in the street, sometimes like someone will like be pretending like like they want to get in a fight with this other person and they're hoping their friends hold them back so they don't have to actually they don't have to actually fight it's kind of it's kind of funny but yeah i think it's marketing too i think it's either they really believe their stuff is so powerful that it's really going to hurt them and they have these existential dilemmas or they're just trying to get us to all look, oh, this is really a thing. I mean, certainly when I see, you know, I know they mean well, but when I see the humane tech guys running from social dilemma to now trying to get Netflix to do the AI dilemma, um, I think, I feel like everyone's trying to run in front or jump on this moving train rather than actually, you know, care about what, what the heck is going on. Yeah, and Zekishan says, and all of us humans are getting dumber and more distracted so the industry people can have the authority to make these claims, average Americans. I mean, it's not all humans. Or average anybody, but most of us. But yeah, they're making the claim on the tech. I mean, the, the tech does cool things. I'm not saying it doesn't do cool things, but it's not an intelligence. And I don't see it escaping or running away. What I do see is that the, real, the only real danger possibility I see is us activating media... Uh, media accelerated or, or, or media executed entrainment mechanisms. In other words, if we decide we're going to use AI on computers and phones to hypnotize all of America or to get everyone to believe a certain thing or to spend more money or to feel depressed, I feel we could get something runaway like that. We could unleash something on the collective psyche that is really um, that is really damaging, but it's not that the AIs are taking charge and you know uh, of the humans. It's that we've enabled a program, whether it's capitalism or domination or uh, colonization, and then we psych ourselves into a state of uh, of despair. David raises a point in the chat, Douglas, that I heard you mention on the podcast, I think years ago now, that it, all of this AI doomerism it it sounds like marketing. Right, right. I and mean, that's sort of what, I, what I'm suggesting here, that it's a way, and that's what I first thought when, um, I forgot who it was, it was like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and someone else, they put out like a New York Times op-ed, oh, this is the greatest existential threat to whatever. And you know, it's just as Sam Altman's like raising money <laughs> to do open AI. I'm like, okay, it's not. You know, really, capitalism is the greatest threat to humanity or the, the, the dominator colonization meme that's, you know, carried by capitalism is the threat. Even if, if, if AI were as powerful as a nuke, it, it still doesn't matter. It's what we tell it to do that, that matters, not what it thinks and, and that it gets its own mind. You know, there's this, I just think it's wrong. There's this, um, it goes back to, you know, Richard Dawkins and Jeffrey Epstein and all those folks, these, these 
I don't know what you call them, gene, selfish gene people, you know, really believe that consciousness is an emergent phenomenon of complex matter, you know, and that's a, a pretty uh, a staunch atheist way of understanding what's going on here, you know, and then there's those of us who believe that matter may be a, uh, matter may be a result of consciousness, you know, groping for some kind of other forms of awareness. And when you, when you think of matter as the effect rather than the cause, um, it opens up all sorts of other possibilities. So then that AI is not this thing that's going to become a conscious being once there's enough computers. No, AI will look like a conscious being to us, you know, once there's enough computers. But I don't think, I don't think you just spawn consciousness like that. I think it's, I think there's something else going on here. But again, I've become a man of faith. So I don't know. Vinny wants to pop up. Well, thanks for having me up here. Uh, sure. Douglas uh, and Luke, um, you know, something you said earlier about, you know, they came for the taxi drivers first and I did not. And, and it's my, when I wrote my second book, Unlocking the Labor Cage, like 10 years ago, mm. it was, you know, I had been a web developer and I saw that automation was, you know, pushing me out from like my, my niche of who, you know, the small business client that I filled. I'm like, I can't charge you anymore. I really just got to send you to Wix. And um, there was an article at the time about how, the Enron data, you know, uh, helped create algorithms for doing corporate discovery faster than a theater full of lawyers could. And what I'm realizing now is, you know, as ChatGTP has passed a bar exam, has been able to pass the Wharton MBA exam, if you are of the tech bro elk and think that intellectual intelligence is the only intelligence that counts and being able to play these games by the existing rules count, then yeah, the existential threat is finally, become, you know, can AI replace the shareholder? Um, and if the AIs can replace the shareholder, because I think, and actually I think, I think you one time in a, in a South by talk said that profit is a form of overhead. I think that's actually, I'm quoting you here. Um, <laughs> And so if we can replace the shareholder and profit is no longer overhead, what does that do for the current situation of like neoliberal profit maximization? Anyway, that's my kind of question commentary on why we're afraid. Right. I guess what real shareholders would proxy their votes to an AI, but when would the share, would they, could the AIs get the shares too? Or could the board hire an AI, you know, or, or, you know, that would, would a board of directors become an AI? Would, you know, where, where does it stop? Like how, how you know, the, the, the right. Bezos's idea that, you know, your margin is my opportunity. So, you know, if, if right. Walmart were to automate all of its money making decisions, what kind of cost cutting could that be on the executive, you know, pay side? Right. And but could we get to the extreme point where then we even have not just AI employees and shareholders and management, but AI customers? So then we don't even have to go, and we don't have to <laughs> just at all just fold into itself, and the AIs will you know rise from the chrysalis of matter into their virtual everything, and then we get the real world back and can start doing stuff again. You know, I almost feel like. There's that, you know, their thing at the bottom of your Gmail that they have like suggested replies to emails that come in. And I was thinking, God, to automate that, let Gmail give my request, my automated replies to you. And then you let Gmail do its automated supply replies to me. 
then we just don't have to use email at all. Then we just go out and just hang out, right? And let, let everything, everything run. I mean, there, there would still be a few things, you know, a few things left, uh, left for us to do. But, but I hear you. I mean, they're already kind of letting AIs or not AIs, but they're letting the values of capitalism run their companies, right? They're, they're very simple Harvard Business School or, or, you know, Price Waterhouse, you know, rules that they follow in a corporation, you know, fire these ones, you know, reduce management, reduce this cost. So they're all, they're almost like these, these companies are like templates, you know, with very little human innovation. And if you start using AIs to make those choices, then you're making all your choices from the past too, right? Because that's what AIs do. They're using, they're using the past. So you end up really just totally short-circuiting any innovation cycle, any novelty. You're just going to get, well, ChatGPT goes up to what, 2021? 20, <laughs> you know, so you're really stuck in the rearview mirror. Yeah, that, that made me think about, I ran an experiment with my wife. Uh, you know, we, we look at recipes and recipes blogs are just, there's so much fluff in there. And uh, so I actually asked ChatGTP to write a fluffy recipe for something. And it did a pretty decent job of replacing that kind of blog writer. But on the other side, now that you, you know, and I haven't experimented with yet, is asking ChatGTP to read all those recipes and just give me the details I want um, so I can right. use it to filter through the, the garbage. That's nice. I mean, and that's what these things should be for, right? You're using technology to make your life easier, not to make someone else's life harder, right? Which <laughs> seems to be the main, the main purpose of most of these things. I think David was is sort of in, 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 in the same, is continuing the same line of questioning or thought here. So, David, hey. Hi, Doug. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks for doing this. Uh, and, and thanks for everything. I, I wanted to say real quick that my uh, first exposure to your work was like, I was like 14, you know, so prime hmm. imprint vulnerability. And I, I can't remember if it was a P, like a pirated PDF. It might have just been the plain text file of Siberia. Uh. Just like, you know, mutated me. Uh irreparably and, and so i'm really grateful for that <laughs> oh thank, i was just looking back at that book because they did after they did that wired profile and they talked about siberia i was like is that what it said and i looked back and i was like you know i kind of i kind of like that book again you know yeah. it, <laughs> it kind of laid out the possibilities and you know people say oh look how crazy and optimistic you were and you look at the end of that book i'm saying you know mondo 2000 and all this is great but there's this new magazine that just started called wired and they got a really different understanding you know, I feel like there may be a window of opportunity for us to make this really crazy and wonderful, but the businessmen seem to be on, you know, fast on our heels, and we may have to be <laughs> conscious of that if we want to keep this thing. And it was like, oh, I was already, already on my journey into <laughs> resistance. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, so, so I, yeah, so my uh, thoughts aren't actually related to AI. It's it's more of a real world thing. Um, cool. Uh, yeah, so so I, it, I've been thinking a lot about disaster relief and community preparedness stuff uh, from a kind of you know like like community angle. Um, mm -hmm. I had this experience last year. I don't know, maybe some people remember there are these really devastating floods in uh, eastern Kentucky that just like wiped out people's houses and it you know it affected towns that were largely kind of poor Appalachian people, etc. And I live near there, so I went um, 
one day to help out with like a, a mutual aid group that was doing cleanup and just, you know, mucking out people's basements and, and stuff. But I, but, uh, you know, sort of talking to the locals, get, you know, really drove the point home that like, especially if you live in an area full of poor people, like no one is coming to save us. Like the, uh, like FEMA in that situation was apparently pretty useless. All the cops did like, and, and national guard and stuff was show up heavily armed and like impose a curfew to stop looters as if there was anything to loot, you know, in, in this situation. So, so it really, but on the flip side, like the mutual aid stuff that, that popped up really quickly and was coordinated with some, some national groups um, that I wanted to plug was really inspiring. And like, it was the, one of the best days I had, you know, it really drove home, home for me, the urgency of, of, of sort of getting these networks in place and, and really thinking about preparedness for any number of disasters, uh, like from a from a more of a lefty communally focused angle, as opposed to you know, because in in the vacuum of the state, the three percenters or the oath keepers or whatever are happy to swoop in, and and, and that is maybe not the outcome we want. I mean, the great thing about it, I mean, you say you know how it's how it's lefty. I mean, and it is lefty in a way, but it's lefty in a way that doesn't trigger righties. Right. You know, we we got flooded in Hurricane Ida here, you know, and I, I wrote about it. We were all digging each other out of, out of digging mud out of everyone's basements and, you know, trying to get their cars started again. And it's, you know, I'm there with next to the guy with the MAGA hat and we're involved in exactly the same activity, pushing the same car out of the same mud hole. We are as aligned as two humans can be huffing and puffing. And it's like, oh, here we are on exactly the same side. I don't know. It doesn't matter that I might have some Marxist ideology about restoring communal values, and he's got some right-wing ideology about restoring communal values. The place we're trying to get to is so exactly the same that it's, um, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's not. It's not even stealth leftiness. It's just basic mutual mutuality, mutual aid. You know, right? And it's not wrong. It's not wrong. You know, it's like I remember when Romney. Everyone gave him a hard time when Romney was running for president. Not that I want Romney because you know he's bad or whatever. But he was on the debate, and they said, oh, "What do you do? You know, do you care about people and all that?" Because he was all mean and bane capital and what. And he said, "You know, my when my neighbors are having a problem, I go there and I help them. And this one needed that, and they needed money. And and the left really attacked him and said, "Oh, look at him! You know, this privileged guy is thinks he's being good because he's helping people." And I'm like, "No, no, no, no! He is being good because he's helping people. It, it's actually." Yeah. You don't don't discount the way people are with their neighbors mm-hmm. and the other people in their neighborhood. It's fucking fine, man. You know, especially for ninety nine percent of us. Maybe not him because he's so rich, but but for ninety nine percent of us, just helping her out in your town, lending things to people, doing first aid, tutoring kids, teaching someone how to read, helping the old lady across the street. It's like that's if we all did that there'd be so much less of a need for a social safety net, right? We become the social safety net. Yes. And I feel like that's, and that's the genuine, to me, that's what Marx was actually talking about. Not that the state is going to administrate through a Politburo and computers, how much toothpaste we need across the whole nation. What he was talking about was how do we re-socialize ourselves to the social transactions Mm -hmm. that actually make a society work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, we we, we dug out, you know, uh, a basement of somebody, uh, you know, we walked through their garage and there was like, 
a bunch of MAGA stuff and, and whatever. And we kind of like looked at each other and was, you know, we're like, okay, whatever. He's, you know, he's down there helping us dig stuff out. It's fine. <laughs> like, you kind of get over it. But again, you know, thanks. Thanks for everything. Well, thank you, you know, and, and thank everybody for being on Team Human. We're at about an hour here, so I guess I guess we'll wrap up. But yeah, I mean, to be reminded of, you know, Siberia, which is about rave and the early shareware-driven internet, you know, kids doing, you know, trading wares on the back of the bus to each other, and the, the whole shareware communal social ethos of the early net, the idea that the net was going to help re-socialize, be like remedial help for a society that had been desocialized through television and advertising. And to, to hear that again now, at the same moment that we're realizing that as we move into potentially dark and treacherous times, that our ability to give each other some aid and support and counsel, you know, to actually just show up for each other, whether it's on the, the picket line for the WGA or digging someone else's house out of the mud. I mean, this is the moment, you know, this is the team human moment. It's showing up for each other in ways that, uh, you know, in ways that matter. And uh, don't let anybody tell you that it doesn't, because I think, you know, when push comes to shove, this is our, our the high leverage point that we have as the the home team on Earth, you know, is to show up for one another at the human scale. So thank you. And thank you all for showing up today. It, it means a lot to me. Life is hard sometimes. It's been some tough weeks, but um Boy, I do a um, I do a kibitz room, and I sure feel better. So so thanks a lot for that. Okay, you've been on Team Human live in the kibitz room in the apocalypse bunker, deep underground, six hundred feet, in fact, beneath the G building at Queens College. Don't tell anyone of our location, but you're welcome here when it happens. Okay, see you soon. And thank you all for being on Team Human. That was the Team Human Salon called the Kibitz Room that we recorded on Friday, May 19th in the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker, also accessible from the Team Human Team Members Discord. You can become a member of Team Human by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Team Human's opening music is by Fugazi. The closing music is by Mike Watt. Team Human was edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Joshua Chapdelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. <laughs>